Hello, and welcome to Pursue the Talks, brought to you by Pursue, a bespoke leadership and transition coaching company with a mission to create, nurture, and develop inspiring leadership across the global education sector. My name is Nicholas Mackay, Associate Professor, Certified Professional Coach, and Director of Pursue, and I'll be your host in this second series of conversations, bringing you cutting-edge stories from across the global education sector delving into the minds of recognized education experts to find out about the challenges and main issues they are facing and to explore what education could look like moving forward. In today's conversation, I'm delighted to welcome Dr. Stephen Whitehead. Stephen is an educational consultant, an internationally recognized author and academic. He has written extensively on gender and identity in education. His 13th book, titled International Schools, The Teacher's Handbook, will be published this year. He is lead writer with Educational Digest International, where his writings and articles on international schools and education have received thousands of views. He was previously international program coordinator and senior lecturer at Education at Kiel University and a director of Sarjana Education Group, Brunei. Stephen, thank you very much for joining me all the way from Chiang Mai today. Well, nice to be with you, Nick, and thanks for the invite. And it's, I hope it's as beautiful here in Chiang Mai, in as in UK, as it is in Chiang Mai, and the sun's shining nicely this morning. Yeah, it's, it's a nice week here in the UK this week, so I think we're expecting some highs of 20, yeah. 29 degrees, so yeah. Well, we, I woke up and it was 30 degrees this morning. <laughs> again. <laughs> again, <laughs> it's like that every day. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, and, and again, j- just for the listeners' benefit, um, our relationship goes back about about eight or ten years, actually, because you were my, yes, it my, does. my yeah. tutors on the MBA International, weren't you, at Kiel? That's right. You were one of the first cohort to do the Kiel University MBA International Program, uh, and I seem to recall, if I recall your 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 essays, they were they were quite good, mate. <laughs> Thanks, Stephen. Yeah, quite good. I'll, I'll take that. I'll take that. <laughs> yeah, they're very good, actually. They're a good student. <laughs> um, well, you've done very well since then, so we must have there must have been something that uh, that we did right for you. I tell you, you know, I, mean, I really enjoy that program actually. And the reason why, because I remember you saying, whenever you start this, um, everyone, don't go moving schools halfway through because it's, you know, it's, it's a big commitment. So we, about a year and a half into it, I, I moved, I was deputy head of a school in um, China. And then just before my dissertation, I had to change the title because I moved back to the UK to be vice principal of a school. And I remember yeah. you saying to me, we, we told you not to move schools, especially <laughs> not countries, halfway through, and you're doing everything at the same time. <laughs> Um, but that dissertation was really interesting because it actually, I think it, it did a, a big part in getting me that job because I did a case study on that education group expanding internationally. I remember now. Yes. Mm. Yeah. I, now it's, now it's coming back and it was a good thesis and it, and it was one, you, you were one of the students that actually, uh, converted the problem into, into, into a, into an opportunity because you refocused your thesis very quickly and got into something that was productive and was beneficial for you in terms of your career and intellectually. A lot of students can't manage that on an MBA. You did it. So congratulations to you. Uh, that wasn't an easy feat and you pulled it off. Yeah, no, it was great. Really, really beneficial. So the main re- reasons we're, we're connecting today is or sort of framed around your latest article for Eddie, the uh, Educational Digest International, around the Asian century is underway. So can you just give us a, a brief overview of what that article is about, Stephen? 
Uh, yeah, I'm not. Well, what I want to talk about is the article. It was about the way in which a, a different narrative has emerged in in the West, and which is being picked up by the East, and that's going to have a very profound and detrimental effect on the number of students going to the West from countries like China. Um, so it's 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 something that's happened suddenly, but it's also I'm going to explain it's something that's been in the pipeline for quite some time. Okay, so what do you think has caused the loss of attraction and desire in UK or US Western education? Well, I say in one respect it's sudden, and the reason is COVID, COVID-19. And that is the stark dysfunctionality of the West in terms of how it's handled this pandemic compared to the quiet efficiency of the East. And just to let's see some of the figures there. If you're living in Asia, seeing now it's 52,000 dead in the UK, over 120,000 dead in the USA, compared to where I'm living in Thailand, 58 dead, Taiwan seven, Malaysia 121, Singapore 26, Vietnam none. <laughs> and even China mainland only 4,600. And we're talking population of millions, hundreds of millions. So what the Asians see is a dysfunctional West with ineffective political leadership topped off with a lack of social cohesion. Not surprisingly, respect then drops significantly. But we must also recognize that what these, these new narratives with regard to the East-West relationships, uh, and these, this narrative has five aspects to it. The first is that the West is not welcoming Asians. The second is the West is hostile to the Chinese specifically. The third narrative is the West is now unsafe. The fourth narrative is the West is failing economically and socially. And the fifth narrative is that the future is Chinese and the Chinese are starting to wake up to that. So this is all contributing to what I call a new paradigm, which is the West, post-Western future. Um, and that's, you know, that's, not, that's suddenly in regard of COVID, but it's been coming around for a while. Uh, it was predicted uh, 15 years ago. Um, and I think uh, all COVID's done is push it along a bit faster. So in, in terms of education then, Stephen, what are, what are the, the main implications around this changing paradigm of education? Well, what we know from looking at the social media uh, is we know the Chinese middle classes, especially, are now saying that the West has got a problem. Uh, and I quote some of, uh, I, I use some quotes in, in that Eddie article, the Chinese Centre Gets Underway, which was published earlier this month. So, but one quote I'm just going to give you um, is from a guy called Richard Shen, a white collar worker for a former firm in Shanghai, whose family run two, two restaurants in, in the city. And he's, he's quoted in, in, in South China Morning Post. And he says, the Chinese government has many problems, but the pandemic makes me feel that foreign countries' governments have even bigger ones. We Chinese will all have second thoughts now about the attractions of the West. And WeChat is full of similar quotes like that. Uh, most modern Chinese families and individuals, uh, they're, shocked, they're actually shocked at the decline of the West, as illustrated by the COVID-19 response. Um, it's another quote, uh, just to back it up. This is a quote from one of Asia's top school franchises, uh, one of the senior leader in a, in a leading international school franchise. And he says, my company's international schools are not short of inquiries from parents not wanting to send their children back to the UK. 
The British and American governments are scoring constant own goals on the world stage, meaning that the independent schools in the UK and USA are going to have an even harder time of things. Asia is now rubbing its hands with glee and welcoming students with open arms. The franchise schools in China and elsewhere are well-placed to benefit from the UK situation, and we're already starting to see that. Um, another quote from uh, Raphael Flaquet, who's director of BE Education, one of the leading Asian student recruitment agencies. And he says, even if UK schools were to open tomorrow and the coronavirus were to be eliminated, I still think there will be a certain amount of distrust. Uh, the UK government and its handling of the COVID pandemic has been viewed negatively by many in China. Uh, so some facts, since COVID-19, the UK has seen a 90% decline in Asian student interest. Okay, recognizing that the actual COVID's creating a problem, a barrier for students to apply, it's still, it's still got a 90% decline in Asian student interest, which is staggering. However, US, France and Germany, it's nearly 100%, so they're even worse off. We also know that UK universities are dropping down the global rankings. Um, and Asian universities are rising up it. We've got a quote here from Phil Batty, the Times Higher Education Chief Knowledge Officer. And he said, Chinese mainland continues to demonstrate the growing strength of its higher education system to the rest of the world. China has been ahead of a lot of Asian countries in prioritizing the knowledge economy. The world will see more Chinese scholars producing research at the highest level in leading journals. The geopolitical implications of the COVID-19 pandemic response, coupled with dramatic changes to the international flow of students and academic talents, will benefit Asian universities and accelerate their competition with the best institutions in the world. So what we all, what these all add up to, is in fact provide evidence, overwhelming evidence, that Western and UK education is now on a slippery slope. So in terms of Sorry to be pessimistic. <laughs> that's a pretty damning verdict then, Stephen. Oh, so, it is. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> so in, in terms of what that looks like, then are, are we saying, I mean, you know, you know, you know a lot better than I do, having lived in Asia for a long, long time. But say Harrow schools have opened up five new new campuses in around China. Are we saying that yeah. lo local students in Asia are going to be going to international schools in their own country rather than traveling to, say, the UK to go to these branded schools. And the same way in higher education, they'll rather get their um, degree or master's or whatever at a um, Chinese, for example, university rather than come to the UK or the US. Right. Well, at this point, we're into a bit of speculation, but I, sus I suspect that's going to be the case. I think what we're going to see is... Uh, a scramble, even bigger scramble, by private schools in the West, particularly the US, Canada, and the UK, to have a physical presence in Asia. Frankly, if, if, a, if a UK independent school does not now have a physical presence in Asia, I think they've got a problem. They're going to have to come to some arrangement financially, because they, they, if they've been relying on overseas students, particularly Asian students, and that, and that, that, uh, market drops off significantly as it looks like it's going to do then then they are going to be in a financial difficult situation those those uh, institutions like harrow and dulwich and many others now that have over the last 10 years have got themselves a foothold in asia um yeah i think they'll be okay because what we do know is that um the chinese and asian middle classes are not in decline 
we know that there is a, a, a massive desire for the best best quality education by Chinese. The Chinese average Chinese families prefer a lot of put a lot of its 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 disposable income into education for its children, much more so than we do in the UK and the West. Uh, and we also know that British education still has a high regard, um, but they won't want to go to the West so much in order to experience it. So it's much safer than for them to stay in in China or in Singapore or in Hong Kong or wherever. Well, okay, not Hong Kong. Hong Kong's a different story right now, but certainly Singapore, Taiwan, China, Japan, South Korea. Um, so the I'll give you one example of that. I just I don't know if you saw the news this week, but China Maple Leaf, which is one of the top education systems in, in China, has just bought um, one of the largest international schools in Singapore for a total of 487 million US. Um, and it's a Canadian international school in Singapore. They just bought that out. Now, I think that's what we're going to see. So that, to me, that, that big play for a major school and putting a... By, by, a, by a, an already established Chinese education operator suggests that Western education still has value economically and socially in Asia. Um, and, and the market now is going to veer more towards these institutions having, having a physical presence in Asia, even more so than they had in the past. And you mentioned there about Hong Kong being different, Stephen. What do you mean by that? Yeah. I think you've got to, whatever I'm saying about Asia, I think we've got to take Hong Kong out of it at the moment. Um, Asia, as anybody who's been in Asia and lived out here knows, I can talk about Asia as a geopolitical entity, but the reality is that it's it, it split in all different ways and different cultures. And there are also tensions between China, for example, uh, and many of the other Southeast Asian countries, particularly Vietnam. So Hong Kong is a different, is a different story. We've got major political and economic problems in Hong Kong at the moment. Uh, and we've got a, um, uh, an exodus, possibly, of middle-class Chinese, wealthy middle, wealthy middle-class Hong Kongers, I should say, to the West. If the new security bill comes in, uh, by the, is, is implemented by the Chinese government, and that looks like it's going to happen. So, in that event, um, there'll be a lot of Hong Kong families looking to move, leave Hong Kong, and settle in the West if they can. And figures of three million have been banded about by. Boris Johnson is potentially getting you some sort of passport. Um, so if that happens, then okay, I think the UK, I think the UK independent schools can benefit can benefit from that market. Um, but Hong Kong will have its own problems. Hong Kong's going through a major process of transition really at the moment. And in terms of um, teachers, for example, I mean, you mentioned there about mm. how the schools in that region will still favour and would still respect the education from the West. Does that still mean that yeah. even though um, potentially you know, schools are being bought out by companies in China, you know, we speak about China here as an example, does that still mean that there's a, a thirst and an appetite for those schools to recruit teachers from outside of those regions? Oh yeah, I think the, the opportunities for Western teachers to come and, and work in, in Asia have, have, have probably never been better. Right now, as we speak, of course, they're limited by all sorts of travel restrictions. But if you've got big players buying schools like the Canadian International School uh, Singapore, then that's indicative of the fact that yes, there's going to be, that market's going to be there. The demand for, for Western qualified teachers is going to be there. Uh, so, I, 
I would I would say to any Western teacher who's listening to this and, and is wondering whether it's it's okay to go east, I'd say go for it. Um, get yourself out here, uh, get yourself into a good school, uh, learn what it means to be an international school teacher. Um, buy the book by Demi Machin and I, which comes out in September, because that will give you some even better advice on there's how the, to do there's that. There's the plug, Stephen. There's, there's the plug. But it, it's the market's there, and, and 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 the schools will require it. However, having said that, um, I want to make the point that I've worked in schools um, where there's been a large number of Asian staff uh, in Brunei, where I was working as director in Sajana Education Group, uh, and I was the only Westerner in that group, and that was four schools, and 50% of the staff were Filipino. And I have to say, they are absolutely spot on. So if I was if I was running an international school, I'd certainly want, in Asia, I'd certainly want Westerners, but I'd also want a, a good percentage of Filipino teachers as well, or Asia, local teachers. I think you need the mix nowadays. I think just to have Western is, is probably a mistake. You need the mix. And in terms of, and again, just trying to unpick this a little bit further, if we're looking at, say, the decline of that Western education and maybe some countries in Asia thinking themselves more of a, of a global elite, what is it about Western teachers that are still desirable? <laughs> the language. Um, that's, that's, that, the language and, and the idea that they, that, that they've gone to a, a, a training system, which is probably still as good or the best, the best in the world. I'm talking now about the, the PGCE, similar to the one that you're involved in at Warwick. Uh, I don't, I've not come across a better training system than the PGCE. And I know it's gone through a lot of evolutions over the years. I was involved in it at Keele University 20 years ago. I know it's changed a lot since then. But nevertheless, I think the teachers that are coming out of the West uh, are well-trained. They're very professional. Uh, and they've, they've, they're also um, uh, open to new ideas and new ways of operating. Uh, they're comfortable with differentiation. They're comfortable with student-centered learning. They know what this is in theory, and they understand how to deliver it in practice. Uh, that, that Even those two concepts, differentiation and student-centered learning, can be very difficult for some Asian teachers to get their head around. Um, Westerners have it usually uh, down to a fine art. So if if you're if you're delivering a, if you're in a if you're running or leading a, a, a substantive international school anywhere in the world and you want the best teaching practice then you, you you're really going to be looking at Westerners I think um, to deliver that. But at the same time, uh, I wouldn't I wouldn't that's not to diminish or lessen the quality of the Asian teachers and I think there are some very very good Asian teachers about now. Uh, and, and, and the idea would be to get that mixed so we can learn from each other. What I would like to see with the international schools is to become much more multicultural. Uh, I know they're mul largely multicultural uh, in, in the student cohorts, uh, but let's see them being more multicultural, and more diverse and more inclusive, particularly regarding here black and Asian uh, teachers than they've been in the past and, and women. Let's see more black, Asian women teachers and leaders in these international schools. And let's lessen the hold that white Anglo-Saxon males have on the leadership of these schools, because that is a problem. I've talked about that and written on that recently, uh, and I think that's now being exposed as being a limitation to the to the cultural uh, professional advancement of international education. We've got these schools talking about themselves, presenting themselves as as as, as providing global citizenship, inclusive education, yeah. critical thinking. 
uh, well, let's put that into practice and let's have the first step evidence of that practice in, in, in the cohorts of the teachers themselves. Let's see that multiculturalism, that diversity, gay, lesbian, black, brown, white, male, female in that cohort, because that's the best way for these young students to understand what it means to live and breathe as a global citizen in the 21st century. And how do we get to that then, Stephen? So how do we get to how that? How do we get inclusivity? Yeah, inclusive, that diversity in a lot of these international institutions. How do we, well, you know, what are the first steps along that journey? I mean, I'm going to have to do another plug here. I'm sorry. Uh, <laughs> I'm sorry. Unbelievable. Nick, but I'm going to go, I'm going to go ahead. Uh, and, and, and I'm working with uh, some of the people, some, some listeners to this will, will, will know this person. I'm working with uh, Viv Grant. Um, uh, who's a, an ex-head teacher uh, in London. who has got her own company uh, called Integrity Coaching. And Viv is a black woman who's been highly successful and, and, and highly recognized in, in UK education. She and I are doing race awareness training for a company called Dragonfly. And what we're finding, this has only come out in the last few weeks, and what we're finding is a big response from UK independent schools who are seeking greater race awareness training for their staff, for their management. Okay, it's a bit late in the day. Some of these schools have been going for about 200 years, but better late than never. And, let, and let's move it forward. But when we talk about race awareness training, what we're actually talking about is inclusivity. So we need sometimes, we can't, to train the leaders to understand what inclusivity is and how to put that into practice. And that might mean grappling with some complicated concepts, uh, engaging with a, in a bit of reflexivity, recognizing the sense of weaknesses of your of your school operation, but all moving in one direction, which is to bring in to make your school more inclusive, both for students and for staff, and, theref- and, and thereby make it more of a more representative of what we need to be seeing these private, uh, which quite honestly they're elitist schools, but they don't because they're elitist in terms of people who can afford to visit them or afford, afford to send a student students to them doesn't mean that it should be exclusive uh, and dominated by a particular cultural uh, social grouping so let's make them inclusive but we're going to have to train I think uh, many of the leaders into that uh, domain so so they for example they don't they don't um, uh, fall into a trap of, of, of unconscious bias which can often happen in, in, in any institution any organization so there has to be a concerted effort by people like you and I to push that agenda. Interestingly, Viv was it was a guest of mine on the first series of the pod, and she was talking about emotional intelligence and, and head teachers yeah, and, and supporting yeah. them. So that that, that, was, that really aligns yeah. to that. Coming yeah. back to, to your um, to your article about the Asian century is underway. I think you mentioned yeah. in there about um, people in Asian a, Asian countries starting to see themselves, and I've mentioned it before as as, as being global elites and not secondary yeah. to, to the West. So yeah. is this happening already? Is this something that, that's been, you know, as you said, mentioned previously, developing over the last 15 years? And, and are they there yet, do you think? I don't think they're there quite yet. I think there's a group of people, a group, a social group, the upper middle classes, um, the wealthy, of which there's a lot in China, who do see themselves as that. Just, let me just slip in one, one, one statistic for you. Uh, most of the wealth in China 
demographically is held by those aged under 45. Compared to the UK, where most were only about what five percent of those aged under forty-five are, have a particularly defined as wealthy. In in China, it's a young country, although it's been going for many thousands of years. It is a young country in terms of the change it's going through, and this is there's a resurgence in China and a growing confidence amongst this new middle class. Um, they're culturally sophisticated. They're confident. You can see it in the, I see it here in Thailand, in, in the tourism, in the tourists that we've had or had up until recently called COVID-19. Um, and there's no way that this group of Chinese and Asians who've got, who are very wealthy, uh, much wealthier than the average Westerner, there's no way that they're going to put the West on a cultural, educational, political pedestal and look up to it and aspire to it. They may want their children to go to Harvard, Yale, Oxford, and Cambridge, but they also want those children to go back to Asia, back to China, back to Singapore, carve out their destiny in Asia. Um, and I think this is indicative of, of a big change in the way in which the Chinese see themselves. So what we're seeing is not a, we're not, we're not on the edge of a major Chinese diaspora, where there's, there's hordes of Chinese want to go and live in the West. That's that's not the case. Right. The Chinese want to buy the best of the West and then take it back and make it theirs in 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 China and, and Asia. Um, so I've I've been watching I've been witnessing this uh, since I came to Thailand in, in, in uh, nearly twenty years ago, uh, and I think it's just getting accelerated. Uh, I, I think we've got to see what happens over the next few next few months. I think if Trump gets elected for another term. And Brexit ends up being the economic disaster it is likely to be, especially with the with COVID facts added in. Then I think it's game over for the West. I think it's, it's just going to be having it'll have to be, learn to play second fiddle to the East. Uh, my children will are already comfortable with that. They're out here in Asia, and my grandchildren will will definitely live that live that reality. I'm sure. And are we just talking about China here, Stephen? Or are we talking about the other Asian countries being or feeling that they're part of this global elite, as we've said? You know, one of the countries that I, I, I went to in the last 10 years, partly as of my work with Keele University and the MBA, uh, that staggered me in terms of its energy and vibrancy, its entrepreneurialism and the confidence of the people. That was Vietnam. I, I just... I do respect the Vietnamese and I respect them for what they went through in the 60s and 70s with the American invasion. And I respect them for how they overcame that, uh, managed to keep the country together and are now got one of the highest GDPs in Asia. I mean, look, there's, they had no deaths from COVID-19. Yeah. It's Even if that's a false figure, we're not talking anything like 50 million, 50,000. Um, they've, they've just... So these countries, these people are, they're, they're, they're very determined. They're very hungry. They're aspirational and they're very, very bright. All they needed was, was the opportunity and a good education. And, and I would, you know, I'd put these countries against any in the West right now. There's, there's a turn, a historic turn. It's not just in the last few months. It's not just in the last five years. It's probably been coming for the last 50 years. But we can see it very clearly now. 
So yeah, China, Vietnam, I see it here in Thailand. Thailand's a slightly different culture to, to many of the other Asian countries, but you see the same self-confidence, self-belief. Um, it's, it's interesting for me as a Westerner, an older Westerner, to, to see it because I didn't, I, wasn't, I didn't grow up with that. I grew up with a very different narrative. So when I was a young child in the 1950s in, in, around the mountain in Merseyside, um, the, the East was a, was a strange place. You know, you never, you, we, we, the British had beaten the Japanese. Uh, they, they conquered most of the world. I can still remember my teacher pointing to a map when I was at school, in primary school, and pointing out the red bits, which was a bloody lot across the map. Uh, yeah. This is the world, this is what we control. This is this is what we have or had. Um, I mean, getting out of that mindset—that's something I've had to do. So I've had to go from that mindset that was instilled in me as a child to the one I'm in now, where I'm thinking, I'm looking back and thinking, I want my children to be here. I don't want my children to be in a, in the UK. If if they've got the chance, I want them to be out in Asia because that's where the future is. And it's strange how that's, as you said, that's totally changed in, in you know, a generation or so, isn't it, really? I mean, that's happened pr- Just in a generation. Quick. Very quick. I mean, we've got look through history. We've gone through centuries and centuries of, 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 of small change, snail-paced change. Then in the space of two decades, it's gone from, it's, it's just accelerated phenomenally. And clearly social media has a lot to do with the internet, globalization, technology. But all this is spurred by the, the basic human desire for communication and connection. That's not gone away. Uh, humans have been wanting to connect a, a, and learn and discover and, and be curious about each other for, for ever since they walked out of Africa 200,000 years ago. But there is something different about this particular time. It's clearly connected with technology, um, but it, it's there's a there's a there's a shift here which many I think I'm it's not it's not just me that's picking up on it I, I I'm I'm learning about it from other people who've written about it and intellectually than I have but I'm also seeing it uh, we are we are there is a new narrative taking place and it happens as you say very fast. So in terms of good news stories. For the UK, the US, Europe, in terms of schools, education, universities, are there any? Well, there are, there are opportunities, um, and I think those opportunities are first to recognise what's happened, how this shift has taken place, what that means, and then to uh, and then to get into uh, a new way of relating to the to the to the East. I mean, first and foremost, it requires a change in thinking. Uh, it, it, so the, the West Westerners, and, and we, uh, you and I, before we went live on this podcast, or started recording this podcast, we mentioned the university that shall remain nameless in the UK, a prominent university, where, from your experience, and I've seen this with my own experience in universities, is the assumption that the Western university professors and leaders felt that we're the best in the world, so the, so the Asians are going to come to us automatically. That that mentality has to go mm. the second thing that needs to happen is much more practical and that is the sort of marketing that these the uk uh, institutions in particular and, and and german and french and canadian and american um the sort of marketing they get into and they have to go digital and that's going to be a steep learning curve I, i'm in contact with one of the major 
digital marketing companies in China, and they're giving me some training and advice on, on what's required. And trust me, I mean, for me, it's pretty hopeless because I'm I'm probably far too old to, to, to change. <laughs> but for young anybody anybody involved in marketing in the UK independent school. Um, needs to recognize that digital marketing actually is going to be the only way to get into that market now. So you've got to change the narrative. You've got to approach it from a different point of view, uh, a different style, a different practice. Uh, the, but the opportunity is still there. The UK, the UK is still up there in terms of soft power, and that's interesting. I mean, the UK has never come out of the top three, to my knowledge, over the last 15 years in terms of the global soft power rankings. Mm. Uh, and anybody who understands what soft power doesn't understand what soft power is, I just Google it. If it's a key determinant, an indicator of a country's ranking socially and culturally. So bear in mind that when when Asians see the West, they don't just see it in terms of politics. They also see it in terms of cultural capital. In other words, if I'm going to spend money for my child to go to a, a Western university. I don't just want them to get a good degree. I want them to come back socially elevated as a consequence. Now, they're yeah. not going to do that if the country itself is down in the soft power rankings. Fortunately for the UK, it's still up there. In 2019, it was ranked number two. Now, it would be interesting to see where it's ranked this year. It's almost certainly going to go down, but I don't think it'll go down as far as the US. The US is even a worse state than we're in. And that's one of the advantages for the UK. It is not the US and it's not Australia. The US and Australia are both out on a limb as far as China's concerned right now. Canada's in a good place. I think Canada will be a beneficiary. I think New Zealand's going to be a beneficiary. Japan and South Korea are both going to be beneficiaries of the turn away from the West. Um, so if, if, if UK schools, um, independent schools, colleges, and universities want to get into the uh, Asian market, still benefit from the vastness of the Asian market, they're going to have to change the mindset and they're going to have to change the practices, marketing practices in particular. It's interesting, isn't it? Because in some, some respects, the UK brands have been quite uh, responsive to expansion. I mean, so they've been there 15, 20 years, some of them. Yeah. Compa yeah, compared to the US brands who have never really yeah, got, exactly. got going. What, what are the reasons for that, do you think? I don't know, to be honest. The only, if I'm looking at the UK, the US, let's, let's include Canada. The only um, franchise, if we, if we put the, U, the US and Canada together and look at all the independent operations, independent schools, the only franchise that I can think of, and it's not really a franchise, but that's Frankston Hall, in, in Jeju Island, which mm. was which was approached by the South Korean government to set up in Jeju because it, the South Koreans wanted to make Jeju Island uh, an international education hub. Uh, Bankston Hall was, was an all-girls school in, I think, in, just outside Toronto, uh, set up in Jeju, big funding from South Korea, uh, followed by London Collegiate School uh, that went into Jeju as well. It was eventually it was run by Paul Friend. We both know who's on. It was on the MBA program at one point. Yeah. So I think I can't think of many other of any other operators. If there are, then then please write into to Nick and let him know, and Nick will tell me because right now I can't think of any franchise, any American franchise that's out in in the U in, in Asia, not in the way that we've got Dulwich, Harrow, Shrewsbury, Winchester, Wellington, Brighton. Wellington, yeah. you know, Malvern, yeah. I don't, I've lost count of how many there are. There's loads. 
Yeah. So what are the reasons that the US hasn't expanded, do you think? Because I mean, as you said, there's huge opportunities that has been for a while now in these markets, but they haven't responded. Maybe the Chinese or maybe the maybe the Asian entrepreneurs don't want them. Maybe the Asian entrepreneurs have have looked at. I mean, for example, you take one company I work with. um, I did some work with some years ago was New World Corporation. And not many listeners will know who they are, but but they're one of the biggest companies in Asia. Uh, Massive Hong Kong company. They build everything from motorways uh, to hotels across Southeast Asia, and, and they're based in Hong Kong. Now, New World have been running uh, uh, schools in Hong Kong for a while, and they wanted to expand. Uh, and when I had discussions with New World, and, and I was talking to um, the, the school owner, the son of the school owner, young, well, the youngest billionaire in Hong Kong, uh, Adrian Cheng, this is some years ago, and I sat down with Adrian and we talked about uh, the sort of schools that he wanted to sort of school he wanted to set up in Kowloon because he had the land. And um, U.S. never came up on the radar. I won't even discuss. Uh, it, it was, there was never any consideration that New World Corporation would um, develop a, a U.S. brand in Hong Kong. He was only interested in uh, in one of the top U.K brand, UK independent school brand names. They had massive money. Money was not an option. They had the land and eventually they went ahead and did it. He wanted a, a second harrow um, and, 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 he, and, and having the resources he could choose. So I don't know. I just don't think the US brand is, is, is attractive to the Asians as, as, the, as the West, as the UK brand. And I think that's indicative of the way in which the US as a country, in terms of soft power, is well down the rankings. Yeah, the, the UK is not. The UK is well up there. And what is it about the UK that makes it well up there? Do you think history, language, and the image that the Asians have of the West, which often staggers me? Um, they, they, they they still seem to. I mean, you've lived in China. You must have picked up on this as well. Yeah. I mean, they, they've got this image, which is almost like a cartoonish. 1950s, 1960s image of, of what Westerners li- are like, uh, which is very little to do with reality now. Um, so they see London and they see this, you know, this this, this ancient city that, that, that represents British or English culture, and we're really it's just one of the it's just another cosmopolitan city in in the world nowadays. Um, it's attractive because of of this this image, the symbols uh, and and, and and values that are associated with being British. Uh, and I say British, I, I don't think for the average Asian, they're going to distinguish between Northern Irish, Welsh, Scottish, and English. Mm. Uh, it's all mixed up into this term British or English or United Kingdom or UK. Um, it looks everything from Adele to the Rolling Stones, from the Beatles to, 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 to 007, you know. It, it's Churchill to John Lennon. Uh, it, it's all there, and you you can't unpick any of it to say, well, it's only that or this. It, it's arisen over 100, 200, 300, 400 years. Um, much of it is based on on on, on misunderstandings. There's, a, there's certainly an element of of, of, of uh, colonialism underpinning all that, uh, which is which is a negativity, but um, it's very powerful. 
uh, and they see the West, they see the UK as uh, as, as a place where they they, they they feel they can get, as I say, they can get this, their, their children can acquire some cultural capital. It's fa- fascinating stuff, isn't it? I mean, if you had to summarise, Stephen, I mean, I know you've done the article on the Asian century is underway, but if you had to summarise some of the, the key points from that, that, that you think UK, US, European institutions should take on board in the shorter term, what would they be? Well, I think, first of all, I would say to any of the institutions in the West now, particularly in the UK, don't, don't imagine that this is a temporary problem. You are, you are, you are in a post, we're in a process of transition. And if you're running a UK independent school or college or university, um, then you're, you're caught up in it. So you've now got to look very critically at the messages you're giving to the Asians. Uh, you need to be clear about safety, respect. You need to, to give confidence. Uh, you need to, that trust factor needs to come back. Uh, and you have to do all that despite the fact that there are political issues going on in, in, the, in the West, which are countering some of that trust uh, and possibility of respect. So as an institution, you've got to reach out and you've got to forget any ideas of entitlement, forget any ideas that because you're a white Western dominated institution, that there's a sense of entitlement that the, that the rest of the world is going to come for you come to you. That, that's not going to happen anymore. Um, any institution that's holding on to that traditional perspective, uh, I don't think it's going to survive. You've got to become globalized. You don't just talk about becoming a global citizen. You need to become a global institution. Uh, you need to learn the languages. You need to learn Mandarin, Chinese. You need to understand the culture. Um, and, and you need to engage with um, Asia on its own terms, not on Western terms, because believe me, um, the Asia, they're very hungry now. Uh, and this, whereas we seeing, we're seeing COVID as a disaster, they see it as an opportunity. Yeah, totally different mindset, isn't it? Well, thanks so much for, for sharing this. It's, it's, I mean, your thoughts, it's fascinating stuff. In terms of you, yourself, what other products do you have on at the moment? Well, I'd say the, the book with Denny and I is coming out uh, in September, um, International Schools, the uh, Teacher's Handbook. Uh, I've got work with a company called Dragonfly, uh, doing race awareness training with Viv Grant and um, marketing, marketing to Asia. Uh, I'm, I'm doing uh, professional development and training to independent schools on marketing to Asia. And the other interesting thing that I was working with uh, a colleague uh, who's been heading uh, an international school in Hong Kong for a good many years and now, now, now left, joined me in a, in a, in a new venture. Uh, and that's uh, Patrick Lee, a Canadian Hong Kong guy. And we're setting up our own company that's going to be targeting developing Canadian international curriculums in, in Asia. And that's an exciting venture. So plenty to going on with that. As I say to you earlier, as long as I get my afternoon sleep and I can get to bed by <laughs> nine o'clock in the evening, I'm, I'm okay. <laughs> um, are, you, are you still doing your um, running and stuff, Stephen? Eh? Yeah, well, I've actually had to give up the running. Uh, it, 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 it started to get to my joints. Uh, I mean, I, I, mean I, I am 71, but I, I won't say that I'm still, I, I've got the energy of, 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 well, I've got the, I've still got energy. Um, I'm, I'm doing a lot of biking. I'm doing cycling. There's a lot of uh, testing hills around here in Chiang Mai, and I do that a couple of times a week. 
I'm doing weight training. I do, I, do, I, I stopped going to the gym, obviously, because the gyms have been closed here, like yeah. elsewhere, but still doing the, doing weight training and gym and, 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 and lots of brisk walking. So I'd, keeping fit, meditation, keeping fit and good sleep. Yeah, there you are. You heard it here. Um, and <laughs> and if, if anyone wants to get in touch with you, Stephen, what, what's the best way? You can go direct to my website, stephenwhitehead.organization, uh, or contact me uh, on, my, on, on, on my email address, uh, which is simply stephenwhiteadasia at gmail.com, stephenwhiteadasia in one, one line at gmail.com. I'm happy to connect with anybody out there who'd like to know more, discuss more of some of the points I've raised today. That's great. Well, thanks so much for coming. It's great to connect again, Stephen. After all these years, yeah, great to connect with you. It's been it's great to see you, and you're looking as handsome and as, you're looking <laughs> fitter than ever. I think, Nick, you you've got a nice suntan, so it's obviously sunny in the UK, and you've got a bit of a beard. And are you still doing the music? I'm still doing a bit. Yeah, I'm a I'm a bit a bit gutter at the moment because the choir, obviously, that means had to stop, and they think it's going to be oh, quite yeah. a long time yeah. to be do that. But I'm still doing some music. Yeah. Um, I'm still doing some bits of African drumming and things like that. I've, I've always done. Oh, yeah. I've been getting out yeah. cycling. Um, you know, I've been doing doing bits of meditation, yoga, right, all right. these kind of things. So you know, keep myself healthy. Um, I haven't had the afternoon naps yet, but um, you know, it's maybe something that I need to have a look at. <laughs> you know, I'm al- I'm always learning. Things. We'll, we'll see. <laughs> We're all learning. Absolutely, I think that's that's, that's the thing. And still, learning. I'm still learning. And I'm, I'm learning from younger people. That, that's a wake-up call. When, when you get older, and you, at one point, you're learning from older people. The visible line you cross as you get older, and then suddenly you're learning from younger people. I don't know if it's because everybody my age has died and I'm left alone, <laughs> or, or everybody older than me has got too decrepit and past it. But I, I, I find I'm learning so much from younger people now, and that, that keeps you on your toes. It's a good thing. Yeah, yeah, exactly right. Well, again, thanks so much, Stephen. Very, very much appreciated. My pleasure. Thank you, Nick. Pleasure. Okay. Uh, if you're interested in the leadership coaching and development offerings at Pursue or would like to connect to discuss any of the topics on the show, please send me an email at hello at pursue.com or visit our website, pursue.com. You can also follow me on LinkedIn at Nicholas Mackay or Pursue. Take care and look forward to speaking to you again soon. <laughs>